0: And uh, we're going to read a little bit from chapter 12 this morning. And so if you're able to, if you'd stand in honor of God as we uh, look at his word together. Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess Serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of their of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. There you shall go, and, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God has given you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then in that, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name Dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite who is within your town, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the the Lord Yahweh will choose in one of your tribes. There, There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. Go down to verse 29. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you are not... Ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did those nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning here in this place and to lift up your name, to exalt you. Help us to do so. Uh, both externally and within our hearts, we pray this in Your Son Jesus' name, Amen. So, I, I don't think it's a controversial thing for me to say that uh, we, as a church, and as individuals in the church, exist to glorify God. Right? That's that's not a controversial thing to say at Bethany Community Church on a Sunday morning. And, and I don't think it's controversial or I'd get much pushback if I said one of the one of the foundational ways that we glorify. The name of God is, is through worship. But, but what does worship mean? What does that, that word mean? I think sometimes when we use the word worship, we have different understandings of what that means. And worship just means to acknowledge the greatness of, of our God, to, to exalt his name. That's, that's what it means. Now, we worship God very broadly, right? We can use that term in a very broad sense, where all that we do is, is worship. All that we do is designed to exalt the name of God. So I, I worship God. I exalt his name whenever I'm in a, a meeting with someone. I exalt God's name when I'm at school. I, I exalt God's name when I'm doing my homework. I exalt God's name when I go running in the morning. I, all that I do in life is worship, okay? In a very broad sense, everything that I do, all that I am, my entire body, as Romans 12 tells us, is, is to be used in, in worship. But we also can use the word worship in a, a more narrow sense. The special occasions in which we're exalting the name of God. And if you go even a little more narrow, sometimes when we use the word worship, we're referring to that, that time that we, as the people of God, come together to exalt His name. Specifically on a, on a Sunday morning. We gather together the first day of the week and we exalt the name of the Lord our, our God together. We engage in worship. Now, how well do we do at that? <laughs> You know, I was uh, listening to an interview that Keith Getty did with Christianity Today. Keith Getty is the author of one of mine and probably one of your favorite hymns in in Christ Alone. And and Getty was talking about, I can't remember all the details of this, but Getty was kind of talking about a a survey that he had done. I I can't remember if it was formal or informal. As he was talking with with people and talked with quite a few. And he said, tell me about the the music at your church. Tell me about the, I think he may have used the, the, the term worship at your church, the singing, whatever. And, and he got feedback. Maybe even just think about it for a second. If someone t- said, hey, tell me about the, the time of congregational worship at, at your church, what, what would you say in response? Here's what Getty found. Getty found that people had a lot of things to say about that time, a lot of different things. Some people talked when they said, "Tell me about the worship." They said, "Well, here's how I respond emotionally." They, they talked about their their emotional response to worship, or some people talked about the style of worship. So you know what? Uh, we have a um, we you know, we have a contemporary service, or we have a blended service, or we have a traditional. And they, they talked about the style of the worship. Some of them talked about the the. Uh, the the, the, the the skill of the people who were playing in the worship band and and how how great they were and uh, some people didn't talk about that uh, some some people talked about the the skill of their their worship pastor or their their song leader whatever they wanted to call him and so they talked about a lot of things some talked about uh, the way in which the words were projected some on a projector some in a hymnal some people talked about uh, the the type of instruments that were used on a Sunday. They talked about a lot of things. Is my point, but here's what Getty said, and, and this was interesting. He said there was one thing that that no one mentioned. No one. You know what it was? No one mentioned the congregation and how they sang. And I don't. When I say how they sang, I don't mean like their talent, but just. It's the way that the congregation engaged in doing that central task that we're supposed to be doing when we get together to sing. No one talked about how well the congregation lifted up and exalted the name of our great God through song. Now, that that's interesting to me, right? It's interesting to me how distracted we can get with even some good things, but some secondary things, and not think, just in that, that one instance of corporate worship, that that one thing that was supposed to be most essential to what we're doing when we're singing, we, we can forget about that. In other words, and, and this is Getty's point, what's most important on a Sunday morning when you talk about the, the singing is not the band, it's not the worship leader, it's not the lighting, it's not the technology that's used, it's the people singing. And again, that's just one example of how we can fail to think rightly about what we're doing during this, this time every week that we get together to exalt God's name together. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at the book of Deuteronomy, and I want us to look at some things that God tells the people in the book of Deuteronomy that they are to be thinking about as they come to worship his name. And I I want us to, to grow in our ability to worship God together as we think about exalting God's great name. Here's kind of the main thing that I want us to think about. Remember, we're in Deuteronomy. We're talking about being God's treasured possession. Deuteronomy chapter twelve. This kind of we're coming back and looking at Deuteronomy twelve. We're going to look at chapters sixteen and seventeen. Deuteronomy twelve and this section begins Moses' second speech. In the book of Deuteronomy, remember there's there's three big speeches, and this kind of begins the second one. In the second one, he's talking about, hey, here's what it looks like. We've talked about the law. Now, here's what it looks like to, to live with the law in the place that God has placed you as his treasured possession. And here's what we're seeing this morning. As God's treasured possession, we fulfill the very purpose for our existence as we exalt the name of the triune God. As we gather together, we do this in all of life, but specifically, as we gather together as the people of God, we are fulfilling the purpose for our existence as we exalt His name. And so, we should probably do this well, right? So, I just want to give a couple thoughts here that I think will help us grow in our worship. Well, there's seven of them. There's no way we're not going to get through all seven of them. Uh, I'm going to read seven of them. We're going to really talk about two or three, and hopefully this encourages us this morning as we look at this text and think about what God would have us do. Here's here's the first thought that I have for us. Number one, one, our thoughts about how to worship God must come from his word. Okay. Number one, our our thoughts about how to worship God must come from his word. Now, look at Deuteronomy 12, and as you look at Deuteronomy 12, I want you to think about three things here in this, this first thought. There's one instruction of what they're to do and two instructions of what they're not to do. So what are they to do? What they are to do is to listen to God and, and obey him when it comes to worship. So you begin in, in verse one, he says, this, this, these are the statutes, the rules that you're to be careful to do in the land of the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you to possess. And you're to do this all the days that you live on the earth. And he goes through, and he, he talks about you're to go to the place that God tells you to go. <clears throat> you're to do the things that God tells you to do. And uh, as, as, as he does these things, he comes to the end of chapter 12. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Okay? So... How are you to worship God? Well, do what God tells you to do. Now, there's also two negative instructions. Because you say, well, okay, if if someone's not going to come to God's word to find out how to worship him, what are the alternatives? Well, the first thing that they're not to do is they're not to take their understanding of how to worship God from those people who are around them. Look at verse 2 of chapter 12. He says, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess, Serve their gods, and so there there are these locations that they're going to go in the land and they're going to find these altars they're going to find these high places these places would be at the city gates, or they'd be. Literally on a, a high place, and you so say you're gonna go there and you're going to, to see this this high place and there's going to be a temptation. Hey, this looks like a pretty good way and a good place to worship God. Maybe we should do this as well. And and Moses says, No, 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 that's that's not how you're to get your ideas about how to worship. You don't come on top of a high mountain and say, You know what, this looks like a nice place to worship God. Oh, here's an altar, here are the things that they did. I think I'm gonna do that as well. He says, No. You're to tear those things down, verse 3. Tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim with fire, chop down the carved image of their gods, and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And then you go on and kind of come to the end of the chapter that we read together. And he says, hey, uh, don't, don't become ensnared. Don't follow them after they've been destroyed before you. Don't ask yourself, you know what, how did, how did the other nations serve their gods? And I'm going to do the same thing. He says, the things that the people did to worship me were abominable. And he gives an example. They, they even sacrificed their sons and daughters. And there were all sorts of other immoral practices that the Canaanites engaged in to worship God. And so, where do we get our thoughts? Where do the people of God get their thoughts about how to worship him, how to honor him? from his word it's it's not from the people who are around them and what else is it not from it's also not from themselves look at verse eight don't do according to all that we are doing here today everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes and he says, this, this is a time where we haven't come into the place that God has, has promised us. And, and when he does, you can't say, you know what? Uh, I kind of like the way I was worshiping God before, and so I'm going to kind of keep, keep on doing that. That, really, uh, that resonated with me. I kind of like that, so I'm going to keep on doing it. You come to verse 13. Same idea. He says, take care that you don't offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see. So you know what? Uh, this is kind of how I like to worship God. Other Israelites like to worship God in a different way. That's not how I like to do it. I'm going to do it this way now. How are we to understand how we're to worship God? What does God tell us to do? Not what do other people do? Not what do I desire to do? Just kind of think about what might mean something to me. I say, okay, what what does God want me to do? And the same thing that was true for the people of God here in Moses' day is also true today, right? We ask ourselves the question, what, what do I do during this time that we gather together as, as a church? And my answer to that question isn't, well, what, what, are other, what, are, what are other organizations doing that kind of excite people? My answer to that question isn't, well, you know, what, what do I want? You know, what kind of resonates with me? My question is, okay, what, what does God's word say needs to be true during this time that we gather together as a people? What, what does God say needs to happen during this time? There's a phrase that's sometimes used called the, the, regulative, the, the regulative principle, and, and there's a lot of baggage with that, that term that some people have, but, but at, at its essential, what, what it's saying is this. This is, uh, as another person puts it. It's, it states that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by God himself and is, is limited by his revealed will. In other words, in other words, let's worship God as he wants to be worshipped. You say, well, what does that mean? It means we say, okay, God, in your word, what things have you told us need to be true during this hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, or however how long it is? And what do we see when we come to Scripture? What are some things that God says need to make up our time? Well, there's the reading of Scripture, right? That's supposed to take place there's the teaching of scripture that needs to take place. We need to be singing when we we come together. We need to participate in the, the Lord's supper at times when we come together and in baptism. We need to be engaged in in prayer. These are all things. These are all things that that we see in scripture that God says look as the new testament church is as, as the people under my new covenant come together, they need to worship me in this way. They need to to read pr- the scripture, preach, sing, pray, uh with one another through their, their songs as well, participate in the Lord's Supper, baptism, and there is. You say, "Well, if it's sinful to do something that's not in Scripture, does that mean it's wrong to to use a microphone because Scripture doesn't mention microphones? Is it wrong to use a a, a pro presenter? And uh, maybe it's wrong, but just from a technological point, not a theological point. Um, no, we say the circumstances in which we do what God tells us to do may change." Some people may use a hymnal, some people may use a pro presenter or a PowerPoint, we're still going to be singing. Some people may use a, uh, an iPad for their, their Bible, some people may use a, a printed text, but we're still reading the Bible together, right? The things, the circum- how long the service is, what type of music you use, some of those things are circumstances, but the elements, the things that we're to do are regulated and, and instructed by God himself. He said, well, how, how do we fail in this? Let, let me just give you two examples. Just, and I, I want to I say these things, hopefully not in a, a super negative way, in a, in a condemning way or a judgmental way, but just in a, a discerning way, right? Let me just give you two examples of how we fail to think rightly about how to worship God and, and allow those things to come from, from his word. One example is, and this is obviously near to my heart, one example is just in the area of, of preaching, okay? The area of preaching. What does the Bible tell us needs to be true of preaching? Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, he says, I I solemnly charge you, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. And What does he tell Timothy? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he says, he prophesies, you know, because there's going to be a time coming when people will have itching ears and, and they won't want to hear those things and they'll accumulate to themselves. They'll, they'll gather teachers that are in accordance with their, their own desire. Now, what is that? That's people who are saying, not what does is God, is, is God tell me in his word needs to be true of this time together. They're saying, you know what, what do I want? I want a preacher who's going to give me what I want, not God's word. So has that taken place in our culture? And again, I'm going to say this very humbly, but I, I believe it has. Uh, Tom Rayner did a survey, and he found that the, the most frequent uh, amount of time that's spent on a sermon, on, on coming to God's Word and teaching, is about 20 to 28 minutes. Okay. I'm not going to give you the names of those churches because I do want anyone to leave, but uh, that's kind of the, the most frequent time used to preach. Another survey uh, found that of they, they surveyed a hundred sermons, hundred contemporary, not just not those liberal churches, a hundred contemporary evangelical sermons, and they couldn't find a single one, a single one that was based upon a text of scripture, or had its its outline based upon a text of scripture. There's a there's a book called it has kind of a, fun, a funny title, uh, "Why Johnny Can't Preach." And uh, this guy, as as he surveyed, thought through the last 25 years of the sermons he's heard, he estimated about 10% of them were based upon Scripture. Now, why is that? It's because we've asked the question, not what does God want us to do with this time, but what does my culture do with this time? What's going to be appealing to the culture, and what do I kind of personally want as kind of maybe a a pick-me-up or a therapy session, right? Again, I, I hope I'm saying that in a gentle way, Okay. Another area is the area of singing, right? The area of singing. And I think if we were to ask most people, okay, tell me about how you evaluate the singing at your church, the time of, you know, this is something God tells us we're to do. And and Colossians 3 describes what's to take place in this time. But I think if most people were asked, okay, tell me about the singing in your church, most people would say, well, um, you know, here's how I emotionally react to it, right? Few would be able to say, okay, if you asked me as I walked out the door, he said, "How was the singing?" Few would be able to say, "You know what? Here are the here are the specific truths about God that I ex- that I proclaimed with my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning." Right? Would you be able to do that as you walked out? Hey, how was the singing? Eh, a little loud. It was awesome because we're in a small group. Or would you say, "You know what?" You, and those things aren't bad to talk about, right? We don't want to get up here and and just do a terrible job singing. Uh, that's my job in, in the front row. Um, I do I have to make sure my microphone is off because if you ever see Mike just going like this, you he, he, he can hear me in his ear, right? No, but can we walk out of church and say, you know what, here's, here's how we fulfilled our God-given responsibility to exalt the name of our triune God, he, and here's what we said, and here's what we sang to, together this morning. And I think Pastor Mike just does an incredible job helping us think about those things, Right? Here's a second thought that I want us to think about this morning. Number two, our ultimate aim in worship is in exalting the Triune God. Now, look at the text again with me, if you would, as you go through the last half of chapter 12. What's interesting is how much he talks about not just the sacrificial system, but the blood itself. So, for example, verse 16: "Don't eat the blood, pour it out on the earth like water. Don't eat it within your towns, the tithe of your ground." It goes on and so forth. And then you come into a chapter, later in the chapter, verse 23, only be sure that you not eat the blood, for the blood is, is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You, you shall not eat it that it may that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Okay, Now, you'll have to kind of... Go back and look at what we talked about when we went through the, the first part of the book of Leviticus. You can kind of listen to that online again if you'd like. But just re- remember, we talked about what the sacrificial system represented. And we talked specifically in, about the, the blood. As you come to the end of the book of Exodus, the people have an existential problem. How are we going to continue to live in proximity to a holy God? How are we going to live in relationship with God and not have him destroy us because of our sin? And they said, okay, we're going to go into the land and the only thing that makes us special is that God is with us. But how can God be with us? Because we're polluted because of our sin and we pollute everything we touch. And the answer was what? The sacrificial system. And specifically the way in which blood dealt with the pollution of sin. And we talked about how that points to who? It points to Jesus. Jesus. And you go through, and the New Testament describes the, the blood of Christ and how the New Covenant fulfills what was promised in the Old Covenant. Beautiful, beautiful things, right? Now, what's, what's the point? The point is that as you come into worship of God in the Old Testament, God is saying, look, I'm, I'm not just some vague deity that you can engage in worship any way you desire. You need to be engaging, again, according to my commands, you need to be engaging in such a way that the the gospel truths about the coming Messiah and the ultimate sacrifice are proclaimed. Now, how does that transfer to those of us who are New Testament saints? Brothers and sisters, as we come together during this this time together each week, we're not just engaging in, in worship of some vague, nice deity in the sky. We don't just come together and say, you know what, Uh, God is great, and we love him, and he's our super friend, and we're so excited. No, we are engaging in worship of a specific God, the God of the universe, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And as we engage in worship of that great God, we are being We're mindful of the great truths of who he is, and we are thinking about specifically who our God is, not just this this vague force that we're excited, that we're kind of together to sing about, right? Or think about. So for example, for example, we think about the the blood of Christ. Romans 3 tells us how to think about the blood of Christ that's also there in Deuteronomy 12. It says, God put forth his son to be a propitiation, and that is a complete satisfaction by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And that's true of the Old Testament. Verse 26, this was to show his righteousness at the present time, that, that God might be just And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, as I engage in worship, and I'm singing about Jesus, I'm not just saying, Jesus is my friend, he's my buddy, things are good. No, I'm saying, okay, Jesus Christ is the one who was sent by God the Father from eternity past... And uh, God the Father ordained to to deliver me from my sin. In the past, my my sin hadn't been dealt with, and and in the Old Testament, my sin. Had, and now Jesus Christ has has not just forgot about my sin. No, God is still just. He still deals with sin, but He's also the Justifier. He's the one who who deals with my sin, and allows me to come in a relationship with Him through faith in Jesus. It's the gospel. As I engage in worship, my my goal is not to come together and say, you know what? Um, I hope that we have just a pleasant time of, of an emotional response. And emotional responses aren't bad. Or my, 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 my goal in our time together is that, um, is that I would be edified. Or my ultimate aim isn't that, that you would be edified. As we come together on a Sunday morning during this time, we're saying, look, my, my ultimate aim, the thing that I desire more than anything else is that I would engage in true worship I would exalt the Triune God I'm not consumed with technical expertise the sound level the beat I, I'm consumed that Jesus Christ God the Father God the Holy Spirit would be exalted here's here's what Bob Coughlin writes, he says, we can get sidetracked by importing a concert mentality into our Sunday meetings. We, we put together worship sets. We sing the latest worship hits. We overwhelm people with special effects. Technology becomes crucial in governing rather than secondary in serving. He said, now, we, we can certainly learn from concerts. There's some things to learn there about sound, lights, images, how music can be used for emotional impact focus, attention, those, those things aren't bad. Concerts are, te- are intended, though, to be intense, emotional, and multisensory. But on Sunday mornings, here's the difference, on Sunday mornings we're not trying to emotionally stimulate people or provide a moving experience regardless of the source. He writes, I once heard a woman describe how Bono and you two taught her more about worship than any Sunday morning worship leader. That's, he says, an alarming statement. Our goal as worship leaders is unlike that of any concert and is far more significant. We're seeking to impress upon people listen to this carefully We're seeking to impress on people the greatness of the Savior whose glory, whose glory transcends our surroundings and technology. We're seeking to impress upon people the, the greatness of, of our Savior, whose glory transcends transcends our surroundings and, and technology. In other words, it's, it's not about whether we're at five points or here in this building. It's not about whether we have a, a smoke machine or we don't have a smoke machine. It's not about we have lights flashing. Around. The glory of God transcends our technology. He transcends our our surroundings. That's our aim. Whenever I was in, in college, uh, I, I got a I purchased a ticket uh, to go see U2 in concert, right? And I was I was pretty excited about it. And then I was, it was right as I was finishing college, and I think the ticket was eighty, eighty-five dollars, which that'd be a great deal today on a on a U2 ticket, right? But but, uh, but I began thinking about it, and I and I I realized, you know what? I'm just a couple months away from getting married, and so I I I, so, I sold my ticket to to someone else and, and spent that eighty-five dollars like. On food, which seemed like a much better uh, purchase uh, at the at the time, yeah. but I, I've always been amazed when I, when, I, when I see those those you know those really big concerts and just there is this, there is an emotional response that people have and I think u two especially does a great job at 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 creating that and people are excited now there is abs there's nothing wrong with that potentially right there's nothing wrong with people being excited about good music but but brothers and sisters don't you think there's something more profound that, that's happening here in our small gathering this morning. We have the opportunity to respond to, 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 to things that are true at a, a fundamental level that, that even you 2 can't reach, right? To, to proclaim truths about a specific God, the God of the universe, and, and respond in worship to him. That, that is a profound ability that you and I have. And our job, our ultimate aim, when we come together as the body of Christ, is, is to exalt him. Here's a third thought. Here's a third thought. Our fullest expression of worship on earth takes place within the local church. Okay. Now, I, need to, I know I need to kind of uh, get through some of these here, but, but here's, here's what I mean. Something interesting happens. You can turn over to Deuteronomy 16. And what happens in Deuteronomy 16 is in chapter 16 and a little bit into chapter 17, there are, are three uh, feasts that are described. And these three feasts are the ones that take place each year. There's, there's three of them every year. And all Israelite males were, were called by God, and, and other people could participate as well, but, but the men had to be there, were called to go to the place that God appointed and to worship him corporately. All of them were to engage in this. And what you find as you go through the rest of Scripture is that when the people were walking with God, these feasts were observed. And when they aren't walking with God, these, these feasts are ignored, right? So, for example, Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 30, there's, there's a time of revival. And what is the revival marked by? Well, the, the people come together and they, they engage in the Passover. Second Chronicles 34, same deal. Josiah, he he institutes his reforms, and what happens as these reforms are instituted, the people come together to worship. Second Kings describes it this way: it says that they, they kept the Passover to the Lord your God as it's written in the book of the covenant, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. So how do they know, how do they know that things are going well with the people spiritually? Because the people come together to worship. Now, here's what we see as we come to the New Testament. I have a lot of verses here I was going to go through that talked about all the Old Testament people worshiping together. You see this in the New Testament as, as well. But just, just trust me on this. Check me biblically, but trust me. What we see for the New Covenant believer is that it is absolutely a good thing for us to, to have a quiet time, a devotional time. It is, is absolutely a, a wonderful thing to go off in the woods and, and spend time with the Lord and, and pray and sing, maybe do it in a small group with your family. All that is, is perfectly fine, biblical, great fantastic, it's true worship, but, but, but the fullest expression of our worship takes place, not when I, I sit off by myself and, and pray and, and sing, but the fullest expression of my worship, the ultimate expression of my worship here on earth takes place once a week as I come together with the people of God to, to, to praise him and exalt his name with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Revelation describes our future this way. In Revelation 7, it says, After this I I looked, and behold, a great multitude that that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And and that's the great eschatological reality, the the great end-time reality that you and I are looking toward. That this moment in which all of us, from every tribe and people and nation and tongue, are, are singing the, the praises of our God and exalting the name of our God together, his salvific work, and this, what we do on a Sunday morning, is supposed to be a, a, a taste of that. It's to be a, a, a sense of what that great future looks like for us, and so we're to be unified, we're to, to, to live in a way that's consistent with that. And I would say, you know what, just, just honestly, as I think about this, and as I've been convicted about this over the last few months, as I've been thinking about our worship, this is, this is an area we can grow, right? It's an area we can grow. And, and we've grown in the past, and we're going to continue to grow. You know, if, uh, it was probably about a year ago or so where we said, you know what, um, what are those things that God says, again, think about biblically, what are those things that God says needs to take place in our worship service? And some of you mentioned, and, and I mentioned this, and other people, Mike, Mike saw this, we said, you know what? Um, prayer isn't, isn't taking the, the place in our service that it, that it needs to biblically. So let's, let's change that. Let's fix that. And we're going to continue to grow. You know, I think that one of the, one of the great things, and hopefully you, you felt this this morning, one of the great things about being in this room is that it, it allows us, it forces us to, to feel the, the corporate nature of, of coming together to sing. Sometimes at five points. Uh, You know, I I can sit off by myself, and I can I can sing, and I you know it it feels a little bit more isolated sometimes. I I think that's an area that we can continue to to grow in by God's grace. Our ultimate uh, our our ultimate uh, aim in in worship is to exalt the Triune God, but our fullest expression that takes place when we do so together. Fourth thought to think about our fuel and worship our our fuel and fruit in worship is is joy. You come into chapter 16 and he mentions the Passover, and we've talked about the Passover before, as we are in the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus. He also mentions this thing that the Feast of Weeks, and we see the feast in the Feast of Weeks, and their time of worship, something that takes place in other places that we've looked at. And it says that in verse 11, as they come together, you rejoice before the Lord your God as you engage in this worship. Now, now here's what I think is important for us to remember. we say that our Our fuel and fruit in worship is joy. As I I think about exalting God's name, which is worship, the the fuel for that is joy. So I I think about who God is, and I think about his his character, and so as as I think about all those things, there's a response of joy, and and from that place of joy, not obligation, but from that, that place of joy comes me proclaiming truths, right? Now, as I proclaim those truths with my brothers and sisters in Christ, what's the result of that? That's also yeah exactly. That's also joy. Now, you, you see, there's a difference. Sometimes we think, okay, I'm going to I'm going to have this emotional experience, and the emotional experience is going to cause worship. In other words, if I if I get excited enough, then then that will produce worship, and that's how the nations worship. It's how we're tempted to worship ourselves. It's how the Canaanites worshipped. The Canaanite worship was it was really immoral, but it was pretty exciting, right? Now, what about for us? No, I'm I'm beginning with who God is, and as I think, there's joy that's produced. But if that if that joy stays bottled up, <laughs> there's a potential that's not true worship either. Because some of us can say, "Well, you know what? I'm just not a very emotional person. I'm, I'm not a very per- I'm not a person who who demonstrates my worship very much." And and I, I understand that. I'm, I'm with you. I'm kind of a private person as well. But you know, uh, worship isn't a time for a poker face, right? You know. I'm excited, but I don't want everyone to know about it, right? Yeah. That, that's not how we worship. You know. If, the, if there's no betrayal in your face that you're excited about who God is, that's not a good sign, right? You know? Imagine if I, you know, hey, tell me about, you ask a grandparent, hey, tell me about your grandkids. I love them a lot. They're, they're super. They're doing amazing things. You know? No, there's, there's excitement, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a response as we think about people we love. And the, fruit and, the fuel and fruit in, our, in worship is joy. Fifthly, our, our gathered worship in the local churches is, is structured. Uh, it, it, you go through these, these Passover's, these, I'm sorry, these feasts, the, the Passover, the weeks, the booths, there are, there, there's structure to the worship, and 1 Corinthians 14 talks about that as well. Sixth thought here, our sacrifice for worship must be costly, Right? Our sacrifice for worship must be costly. Now, the good news is, as we think about this in the, as New Covenant believers, who bears the cost for the sacrifice that allows us to come into God's presence? It's Jesus, right? So, our sacrifice for worship must be costly. But the beauty is, we think about our worship in the, as New Covenant believers, that cost is borne completely by Christ, And then finally, final thought here, our, our hearts in worship must be reverent. Our, our hearts in worship must be reverent. Look, look at chapter 17. He's talked about the three feasts, and then he comes to chapter 17, and he talks, about, he talks about the seriousness with which God takes worship. He talks about a person who's found not worshiping God, transgressing his covenant, has served other gods and worshipped them, the sun, the moon, or any of the host of heaven, which I've forbidden and it's told you, and you, you hear of it, you inquire diligently. And, and if it's true, verse 5 says, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. And then verse 7, the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him or, or put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, what, how does this apply to us as New Covenant believers, those of us who are part of the New Covenant through Christ's blood? Well, the good news is we, we don't get stoned for bad singing, right? You know, you know what, uh, you're off key, we're going to take you out back. And yeah, we're, some of us are, some of us are in a, very safe because of that, right? But what it does convey is, is the seriousness with which God takes worship, right? Worship for God is not something that we enter into to casually. There is a reverence and a fear that we have as we approach a holy God. As we approach a holy God with our lives, there's a fear as we think about reverence of worshiping him with every aspect of our lives. But I, brothers and sisters, I would say as we come together on a Sunday morning, and, and as we sing, and as we pray together, and as we read the Bible together, and as we, we, we teach about the Bible, and as we we, we, we encourage one another, there, there is a, a reverence in and again, I, I don't want to be uh, unfairly harsh on, on people who practice things differently than, than I do. And so I'm not saying that if you don't do everything like we do, you're doing wrong. But I, I think a lot of silliness in worship would, would be done away with if people just said, you know what, I, I need to do this reverently, right? God is a holy God who, who must be worshipped rightly. I, I think that would take care of a lot of silly, frivolous things that, that we use to try— to replace that which we're we're ultimately supposed to do, exalting the name of our great God. We would understand, look, there's a difference between the work of adrenaline and and the work of the Holy Spirit. And I need, as I engage in worship of of my great God, to be be driven by the truths of of who he is and respond, as, as God's people... Respond here in this passage. I need to just respond with joy because it is—it's a, a privilege to be able to proclaim the truths about who God is. I hope these thoughts are helpful, right? Helpful for us as we think just individually. How does my own heart need to improve as, as I approach God? As I think about who He is, and as I I proclaim truths about Him, and, and come together with God's people. And, and I hope it's encouraging to us corporately as we think, okay, we're entering, we're about to enter our. our about to celebrate our, our 10-year anniversary as, as a church. What, what does it look like for us to worship on a Sunday morning together over, over the next 10 years? How do we grow in that? And I, I have some thoughts, and we'll continue to, to think through that. As God's treasured possession, right, as his people, we're fulfilling the, the ultimate reason for our existence as we worship him. And, and part, of that, part of that is, is taking place— as we gather together to worship him on a Sunday morning. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for our ability to worship you. Help us this morning to worship you, to continue to worship you with fear, with joy, with trust, with exalting the great name of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.